Well, Father, we are just grateful to be here today where we can sit under the teaching of your word. I pray that as we talk about a relatively controversial topic, that your word will speak very clearly, that it will be eagerly embraced, that we will see its wisdom and your wisdom through it. Pray that you help me to be a clear communicator. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will help these words translate into the hearts of all who hear it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, behind every man, behind every great man, there's a great woman, right? You all know that phrase. It was first articulated and published um, by Merrill Frost. Meryl Frost was born in Canada, went to Dartmouth College, and played football there in 1941 and 42. And then he naturalized to become an American citizen so that he could defend his newfound country. The plane, where he was traveling in a plane over the Balkans, it crashed. Seven crew members died. He survived, although he was burned in the face and in the torso. He survived, went back to Dartmouth, and captained the football team. He was awarded the award for Most Courageous Athlete of 1945, and a newspaper clipping records the following. As he received his trophy, the plucky quarterback unfolded the story of how he came back. He said, They say behind every great man there is a woman, while I'm not a great man, there's a great woman behind me. And that is the first recorded instance of that phrase. And it pays tribute to the supporting role that women play in the life of men. And we see this concept in Luke 8, 1 through 3, where Luke pays tribute to the great women of Jesus's ministry. So he's about to transition to a new section of the gospel, but as he does, this is what we read. Soon afterwards, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women, who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now, this is a transitional paragraph that pays tribute and gives honor to key women involved in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And it kind of builds on the theme that I think you see throughout the Gospel of Luke, where you see how, how Luke honors women throughout this gospel. Remember Elizabeth? She is described as a, as a righteous woman who is faithful to the Lord and given the honor of giving birth to John the Baptist. Then you have Mary, who when she hears the news from Gabriel that she will bear a son through a miracle, she does not dispute it, doubt it, or argue it, and that's in contrast to Zacharias, who, Zechariah, who um, was somewhat skeptical of the angel's claims. Moving on, you see how Jesus heals Mary or heals Peter's mother. Uh, he raises the widow's son, and then we saw last week how this unnamed sinner, a woman, basically acts as a foil, a contrast to Simon, where she was forgiven much, so she loves much. We see tribute to the women here. You see other women that are honored, such as Mary, remember Mary and Martha, where Mary sits at Jesus' feet, taking in his teaching as a disciple. You have Jesus commending the widow who gave all that, the, she, ha all that she had, and, and naturally, one of the major contributions is the role that women play in the resurrection narrative, where they were the last at the tomb, and then they were the first at the tomb, and they were the first to testify the glory of the risen Lord. So all this to say, Jesus has a high view of women, which was really contrary to the expectation at the time. In John chapter 4, remember Jesus is at the well and he has a conversation with a woman who was in multiple relationships. Uh, 
And when the disciples come back, they see Jesus talking to the women, and this is the sentiment, John 4, 27. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? You see, women occupied a lower place on the social ladder. And throughout Luke's writings, you see he gives them an honored place. He demonstrates that behind the ministry of a good man, there are great women. Now, while this seems to be commendable, we live in a culture where this doesn't seem to go far enough. I'm going to go all 80s on you again by quoting a song from the Eurythmics. I will quote, not sing, because you know I have a policy against singing in public. It's actually not my policy, it's my wife's policy. Now, there was a time when they used to say that behind every great man, there had to be a great woman. But in these times of change, you know that's no longer true. So we're coming out of the kitchen because there's something we forgot to say to you. We say sisters are doing it for themselves. Right? It's not enough to say behind a great man, there's a great woman. There The song's about female empowerment and the importance of coming out from under the shadows of men. Uh, There is a a skepticism towards this supportive role of women. It it comes across as patriarchal, right? And patriarchy, as uh, we have been taught, is something that, that diminishes women. And if you've been at our church long enough, you know that we have an all male elder board. Uh, on Sunday morning, even though my wife has taught behind this pulpit to a company of women, uh, we have men teaching from the pulpit. Now, in a day and age where what you do and the opportunities afforded to you are critical to how you can express yourself, in a day and age where the supreme... um, asset, so to speak, is power. Anything that seems to diminish access to power is deemed as oppressive, right? I mean, that's the culture that we live in. And there is a lot of discussion about whether or not we need to update the scriptures and these outdated patriarchal norms to give women equal access to power, and it's all done in the name of equality. This is something called egalitarianism. Sex is just arbitrary. We shouldn't have people's callings governed by their gender. What the Bible teaches, and I think what comes through here, is something called complementarianism. It acknowledges that men and women are created differently. There is a a created design difference that shapes how we express ourselves and how we engage in the community of faith specifically. Women are of equal value, but they have different roles. But nonetheless, that doesn't diminish the honor that is due, right? Isn't it interesting how Luke takes a time out in this passage to honor women? He honors women who are engaging in this wonderful support ministry and giving credence to the fact that behind every great man, right, is a great, in this case, team of women. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to give a, just go through this passage briefly, and we're going to look at the summary of Jesus's ministry, and then the support of Jesus's ministry, and then go back and just talk about this, maybe some more big picture things, and, and basically how How Luke doesn't just honor persons, he honors women. He honors the specific group of individuals of the opposite sex who played a key role in building the early church. And I think if we have a theology of honoring women as women for what they do, some of the scariness of patriarchy will diminish. Does that make sense? So let's go ahead and look at this passage. Starting in verse 1, we're going to look at at the summary of his ministry. 
Soon afterward, he went through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. So big cities, small hamlets. Jesus is traveling all over Palestine, and he would find a spot, and he would preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Right? He would say, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. He's talking about a future reign when he will reign over everything. Sin and death will be no more. All will be right. All will be well. And to prepare Israel for this, they had to repent and believe and convert. This was an important message. And Jesus didn't travel alone. He did not travel alone. You see that there was a support system in place. You look at verse 2, or end of verse 1, and the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. There was a support system in place. Now, one of my Christian heroes is William Carey. William Carey is considered the the father of the modern missions movement. And he and a group of Christian leaders in England had a burden for reaching the lost, uh, specifically the nation and the peoples of India. And one pastor likened the people of India to a treasure at the bottom of a deep, unexplored mine. And William Carey heard that analogy and said this, I will go down the mine shaft if you all hold the ropes. And thus you have this term, rope holder. William Carey knew that he couldn't just go to India on his own. He needed a a team to support him. He needed a, a support system. And that's a very biblical concept, right? Jesus is going around preaching the good news of the kingdom, but he doesn't do it alone. He's, occupied, he's, he's accompanied by the 12, right? The 12 are his apostles. When he undergoes the threat from the establishment, there is a sense that the time is ticking on his ministry. One day they'll come for him. They'll take his life. He spends the night in prayer, and he asks God, and God helps him discern the 12 who will succeed him in his ministry, with one obvious exception. They will manage the crowds. They will be trained to succeed him. They will support him. Right? Their, their role is obvious. But along with the 12, we see and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Suzanne, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now, it was very common in that time for women to support the ministry of a traveling rabbi. What was uncommon was for the women to actually travel with the rabbi. These are women who were healed and transformed by Jesus. And, And it's fitting that it follows after the heels of this sinful woman, who's not named and is not Mary or anybody that's listed here, who had been transformed by Jesus in some way. And remember what Jesus said, she who has been forgiven much loves much. And these women were forgiven much. They were transformed. And that transformation translates into deep love, which shows itself in gratitude, which shows itself in sacrifice, It shows itself in wanting to follow this great man, participating in any way they can. And the women are listed off. One, you have Mary Magdalene. Magdalene is probably derived from Magdala, which is a a town on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. She was transformed by Jesus because she had seven demons. Not one. Seven sinister demons forces inhabited her her body, 
dominated her will and brought her great ruin and misery. But Jesus comes to her and he cast out all seven demons. And now she has been changed and transformed. She is now a follower of Jesus. She's joined by Joanna, the wife of Cusa, who is an official in Herod's court, right? Herod was the king of the region. And to be the household manager meant you managed his assets. You had a lot of say, a lot of sway, probably a lot of wealth. And that's really interesting is she's here without her husband following Jesus. She had access to the royal courts, access to untold wealth. And yet she walks away from it to follow Jesus. And Mary and Joanna show up later in this gospel. In fact, flip forward to Luke 24. Luke 24. After Jesus was crucified, the women follow his body to see where he was laid. There was a Sabbath day. And then verse 1 But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices they had prepared. These women went to the tomb, and they saw the stone rolled away. They looked inside the tomb and saw that the body of Jesus was not there. What they did see were angels who told them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? They believed it. Then they testified to it. And who were these women? Well, verse 10. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. They were the first humans to see, believe, and testify that Jesus rose from the dead. Now going back to verse 8, or sorry, chapter 8, we see the third woman mentioned, Susanna. Now, we don't know much about her, but the fact that Luke identifies her by name seems to suggest that she was known to the original audience. And, verse 3, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now, one thing about Greek is that in the Greek, some of these pronouns that are generic to us have feminine and male declensions. So when it says, and many others, that's many other women, because that's in the feminine, who provided for them, them is masculine, out of their feminine means. Did you catch that? So these women provided for them, the 12 plus Jesus, out of their means. They sacrificed for the disciples. Now later on, the disciples would go out two by two, taking advantage of ancient Near Eastern hospitality to be welcomed and provided for. But when they're all one traveling band, that was too much for any household to sustain. And so these women gave of their wealth to support Jesus's ministry. They served him. They sought to minister to him. That loyalty followed them all the way to the cross. While the 12 were scattered, where were the women? They were there, present, watching. In 2355, the women had come with him from Galilee, followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Right? They were the last at the cross and the first at the tomb. They sought to honor their Lord by sacrificing the wealth. In the case of the you know, preparing the body for burial, they provided the spices and the ointments and were willing to lovingly care for the body of a man that they loved very much. As we keep on reading in Luke's account, his sequel, which is Acts, you find that the Mary, the mother, mother of Jesus, is in the company of the disciples when they pray and seek a replacement for Judas. Tabitha is described as a woman full of good works and charity. That's Acts 9.36. Mary, the mother of Mark, hosts the church in her home. Acts 12, 12, Rhoda, the servant girl, greets the supernaturally released Peter, 12, 13. Lydia was a woman of means who converted to Christ 
and supported the ministry of Paul. Acts 16, 13 through 14. Demarius, a woman, is converted when she heard Paul's preaching at Mars Hill. Priscilla and her husband clarified the gospel to Apollo so that he can preach it more faithfully. Acts 18, 26. And then the Lord spoke through Philip's daughters in Acts 21, 9. And that's kind of interesting because what it does is it reveals that the prophecy of Joel, that both men and women, sons and daughters, will prophesy, is indeed true that women have the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean that they had the office of prophet, but it means that they were able to prophesy. So in all of this, you see, there is a a, a lifting and elevation and honoring of women so that Paul can affirm them as full and equal citizens of the kingdom of God. When anyone is in in Christ, their identity is in Christ. If you're in Christ, you're really equal with all others. That's the argument he makes in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you're all one in Christ. And that's a great truth. Now, some people will take that passage and say that if we're all one in Christ, then there's really no need to distinguish one from the other. If you followed the news this past week, Saddleback Church, which was at one point in time pastored by Rick Warren, you may have heard of him, Purpose Driven Everything, they decided to ordain three female pastors. And when they did, the Southern Baptist Convention disfellowshipped Saddleback from the convention. Now, will the world see that as good or bad? Will there be greater esteem for Saddleback or less? Of course there'll be more, right? Because there is kind of this, this idea that why can't women teach and preside and lead and have authority in the church? Why can't they be pastors? Why can't they lead the home? Now, before I answer that question, I, I want to just kind of assess the cultural climate that we're in. Okay? And I think there's, there's kind of three factors that lead to skepticism towards the complementarian teaching of Scripture. Number one is we live in a day and age where the fulfillment of self is the highest goal of humanity. It's self-realization. It's finding out who you are. And our job is to allow other people to go on that same journey. You discover who you are, and you should have the means to express yourself. Agreed? And so if a woman feels like she's gifted to teach and lead, it is wrong to deny her that opportunity. Number two, I think there is a diminishment of sacrifice. To tell somebody that you need to deny yourself almost seems oppressive and can facilitate abuse. If you tell somebody that you need to deny yourself, this is what you're called to do, and you tell one group of people to do that and not another, as it's perceived we do when we talk about the biblical teaching of of masculine and feminine roles, it seems to be abusive. And thirdly, We live in a society that has a heightened awareness of the danger of abuse. Spiritual abuse, spousal abuse, and let me just say, the Bible has been used to browbeat women into submission. The Bible and God's truth in the wrong hands can be perverted, twisted, distorted, There are some ogres out there who suppress women in the name of male headship. Secondly, one thing about having an all-male elder board is sometimes we can be blind to the experience and the plight of some women. Uh, Sometimes it's easy for an all-male elder board to say there's sin on both sides, not understanding some of the, the dynamics that for the woman... She is obligated by the Lord and Scripture to do what her husband says. The husband holds a lot more power in that relationship. And, and there's a certain vulnerability that I think women experience that men don't, right? Like men, how often do you feel unsafe when you walk around town at night? Right? I can count on one hand the times I felt that way. 
and most of them were in California lately. <laughs> but women, how often do you experience that and feel that, right? There is a vulnerability that women feel that men don't, and sometimes men can be slow on the uptake to really understand that. So all that to say, you know, there is a clear understanding of the divine design for family, and, and I think men and male elder boards have grown in their understanding of this. But that said, the Bible makes a clear distinction between men and women from the beginning. In fact, turn with me. We're going to read about the creation of women. And we're going to go to uh, Genesis chapter 2. So Adam is in the garden. He's naming all these animals. And up until this point, God has said, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is good. And in verse 20 of chapter 2, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But Adam, for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in place. And the rib closed, and the Lord had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to a man. Right? And all of this is in response to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him, suitable for him. Right? There is an elevation where there is a distinction between the animal world and Eve. She is a helper suitable for him. She is made in the image of God just like Adam. She came out of a man and she served side by side. In saying that she's a helper suitable for him, there, there's an affirmation of female dignity in that passage. But there is a sense where she is a helper, like the Holy Spirit is a helper in the Trinity, right? Doesn't diminish the role or the authority there is a value there. It is affirmed. He said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. She's to support him. We'll talk more about that in what he's called to do. And these women in Luke chapter 8, they have a helping ministry, don't they? You see that even in Luke chapter 8, you have the 12, right? And the 12 were the apostles, official leaders, and successors of Jesus' ministry, and all of them are male. But then you have women in a supporting role. And then as we keep on reading in the scripture, and let's all turn to, I'm going to go there, 1 Timothy chapter 2. You see Paul explaining why is this the case? Now, 1 Timothy was written to help Timothy know how to conduct himself in the household of God. He likens the church to a family as organized around the family structure. Paul teaches elsewhere that within the family structure, the man is to lovingly lead and the woman is to joyfully submit, right? There is a complementary role between the two genders, and that is to show itself in the church. Now, apparently... Some of this teaching was being challenged. Perhaps some women were presuming to speak and have the ability, uh, saying, I have the ability to teach the congregation, and Paul actually puts a stop to it. So we'll go ahead and, and start in verse 11 and kind of work our way through this passage. Paul says this, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, I've spoken about this elsewhere, looked at the different points of views. Basically, my conclusion is this. Paul is saying that women are not to teach in the assembly. Answering a question in Sunday school class is not what he's talking about here. It's to presume upon an authoritative teaching role. 
given the teaching that it's going to have about elders a little bit later on, we see that this, what I'm doing right now, is confined to men. And then he explains why. A lot of people will say, well, this is just the culture at the time. Things have changed. But what's fascinating is that Paul is about to anchor this command in pre-fallen creation. Okay, look at verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. He's making two arguments here. First, Adam was formed first, and then Eve. Uh, In the Hebrew world, they had a a custom called primogeniture, which meant that the firstborn son got the greater share of the inheritance. He was the one who would lead the worship service in the absence of the father. He became an authority within the family because he was born first. So Paul is making the argument that Adam was formed first, and that is a declaration of a certain amount of authority. And this Justification is anchored in a pre-fall reality when everything was good. He makes a second argument when he says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, what's interesting about this is Adam wasn't deceived. Adam was willful. He wasn't deceived. He was willful. He didn't need to be tricked to sin against God. But then he makes the argument that Eve did act on her deception and it had catastrophic consequences. So we're going to go ahead and flip back to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read about this deception. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not Eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows. That in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan is telling a lie that God is holding back a blessing, Eve. You know, wouldn't it be great if you didn't have to look to God all the time to discern good and evil? What if you could just discern it all by yourself? You, hey, Eve, I believe in equality. You can be equal with God. How would you like that? Right? Wasn't that what it was? It's a rejection of God. And when you look at how God ordered the garden, it was God, then man, then woman, major gap than the animal kingdom. But now we have Satan inhabiting the animal kingdom, working Eve to get to Adam to turn against God. Do you see what's happening there? It was a rejection of the hierarchy that God created in the good garden. And what did Eve do when the woman saw it? Verse 6 that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Right? She rejected God. She wanted to be equal with God. And wanting to be equal with God is really a means of rejecting God. And that's what happened. Striving for equality led to rebellion. And we're all paying for it. 
So that's the argument that he's making. She was deceived. She was deceived because she rejected the created order. And then he gives some hope. And this is a really fascinating passage. I'm going to focus on this for the rest of our time. He says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in love, continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Yet she, Eve, will be saved through childbearing. Wow. Right? What, what is he even talking about? Okay? Now, as you recall, there were two commands given by God in the garden. The first we will talk about, but the second was, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? We all know that command. But the first command is something that we call the creation mandate. Is found in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 28. God blessed them, man and woman, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Right? That was the first of the two commands. Now, they disobeyed the second command, and when they disobeyed the second command, Obedience to this first command became a lot more difficult. You see the curse in Genesis 3.15, where he curses the animal kingdom, and now he's going to curse Eve as well. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain and childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, that first part of the curse contains a promise that from the woman will come a seed who's going to crush Satan. We know from Romans 16 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. That from the woman will come a son, great, 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 great grandson, who will crush Satan. Satan, right? The one who instigated the curse will be destroyed. Now to Adam, he said this in verse 17. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Notice there is a promise of death. You are to rule and subdue the earth, Adam. But in ruling and subduing the earth, the earth is going to one day subdue you. You will go back to the earth from which you came. You will die. Now, how would Adam respond to this? You think about Judas, right? When you betrayed Jesus, when you realized that it was too late. Remember what Judas did? He killed himself. Adam theoretically could kill himself. Just say, I'm not going to rule and subdue the earth. But what we see is an expression of faith. He says in verse 19, now, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of the living. We disobeyed that second command. But when he called his wife Eve, mother of the living, that's a declaration of faith. Number one, he believed that they would live long enough that they would sire children, sire a son, produce daughters. And secondly, it's really a, a, a recommitment that in spite of all of the difficulties that we have because of the curse, Eve, you and I, we will be fruitful and multiply. And out of being fruitful and multiplying, there will one day come a son that will reverse this awful curse. Now with that understanding, let's look at verse 15 again. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. Do you see it now? If they continue in the faith and love and holiness with self-control. 
in kind of an awkward way, Paul says she will be saved by childbearing and you will be saved through childbearing. In other words, when you have a high esteem for motherhood, you realizing the calling of motherhood, the redemptive purpose of motherhood, you basically affirm the goodness of that calling. You see, in all of this, one thing that makes a woman a woman, in fact, I read the Kansas Bill of Rights for Women that was just passed in the Senate this week, and this is what they said. They defined a woman as this. I know this is a very difficult thing to define, but I found this definition somewhat compelling. What's a woman? Someone whose biological reproductive system is developed to produce an ova. Sounds pretty good to me, doesn't it? But isn't it interesting that a woman is defined by her capacity to be a mother? A trans man, I'm sorry, a trans woman is not a woman because he, she, well, he can never be a mother. You look at the modern feminist movement where they fight for the equality with the genders, for the genders, right? That we can do anything that a man can do. And to make sure that can take place, you have to allow for what? Abortion. Abortion is a rejection of motherhood, isn't it? It's a rejection of motherhood. It's saying that a child can terminate one's education, stall the climb up the corporate ladder, make them more dependent on men, and so kill the child so you don't have to be a mother. It's a fundamental rejection of motherhood. Right? That's one of the great cultural divides that we're seeing. Is motherhood a good thing? Now, what's really interesting is some people will push back, like I'm diminishing all women by saying motherhood is a good calling, because naturally we have some women who perhaps just could never have children. Perhaps it's biological. It could be in the providence of God. The Lord has never provided a, a male, right? Does that make you any less than a woman? No. Because motherhood can still be part of your calling. There is a place where this community can, can have it be a, be a community of mothers where we nurture other mothers. You look at Titus 2, 3 through 4. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train young women to love their husbands and children, right? Equipping other mothers. Being spiritual mothers. I often go to the Oaks Ministry. I'm the only non-older saint who goes there. Do you know why I go there? Because I'm spoiled like an only child. I got all these spiritual mothers there, and they just sit me down to make sure I eat. They bring me lots of sweets to try to fatten me up. They dote on me. I love it. Becky says I love it too much. Probably right. But you know, there's a place for that. There's a place for that. This is a community of mothers and sisters and, and daughters where that calling to pass on the faith to the next generation to help people be nurtured in the fear and admonition of the Lord. There is a special place and role that women can have. You see, the structure of the church is not necessarily meant to deny women this calling. It is to remind them and affirm them of this calling. Now, is it chauvinistic? Well, I would just say this. It's what the Bible clearly teaches. And I'd hesitant to call, I'm hesitant to call God a chauvinist. If you want to do that, that's between you and the Lord. Secondly, power is overrated. Power is overrated. You know, in a godless society, there's almost this belief that we have to have the power. But we live in a society where power is delegated. Let's compare two marriages. In one marriage, there's a firm belief that whoever leads is the one who's the most capable, gifted leader. Okay, that's marriage one. Marriage two is who leads is assigned by gender. Now, in marriage one, the husband says, we've talked about it, talked it over, and it's clear 
I am the leader because I'm the most gifted and capable. In the other marriage, the man says, I'm the leader. She's probably more gifted and more capable. But this is what God assigned. Who would you rather be under? The person who believes that I have the power because I've earned it? Or the person who believes I have the power because it was given to me? Who would you rather be under? Who would be the tyrant? Do you see it? You see, our culture teaches that you have to fight for your power. The Bible teaches that power is delegated by God, and all who receive power will answer to him for how they use it. And, and frankly, the rejection of God's design has tremendous ramifications for our society. I mentioned this last week at the annual report that there's a troubling CDC study that talks about the emotional anguish of high school students. One in three teen girls seriously considered attempting suicide. One in 10 teenagers attempted suicide. 57% of teenage girls persistently feel sad and hopeless. And these numbers are skyrocketing, right? This next generation is in trouble. And 20 years from now, the people who are having all these uh, mental maladies, they're going to be in charge. Are you concerned about the next generation? I am. We're looking at population shortages in the Far East. That's bad news. The diminishment of motherhood is the diminishment of children. It is to be so focused on the self and self-fulfillment that you don't think about our advancement as a society or even our community. And frankly, when someone becomes a mother, when a woman becomes a mother, not someone, but a woman specifically becomes a mother, um, it does require sacrifice. There is a voluntary impoverishment that takes place. Your body shapeshifts. It looks different. You feel different. In the middle of the night when the baby cries, only you have the equipment to do something about it. You set aside the reading of theological tomes, great fiction, to read Goodnight Moon for the hundredth time. You have a mental awareness of the needs of each of your child. Only you really know how to care for them in the way that you should. I'm just going to say it. Men are terrible mothers. <laughs> I remember Becky was called away because her grandma died. And I was, I wouldn't say stuck. I had the opportunity to serve my family by single parenting my children. And the first day, it was great. You guys all actually rallied around me, were providing me meals and everything, which I gladly accepted. And Becky would call, and I would say, yeah, things are going great. Stay there as long as you want. We're nailing this. Day number four came around. No, we're, we're doing all right. Hey, 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 hey. Day number seven. Well, you shut up. I'm talking to your mother. Jeez. I was having a breakdown. <laughs> Becky felt secretly vindicated, by the way. But it was true. I'm a terrible mother. I'm a terrible mother. You know, so a lot of times we talk about what women can't do at the expense of what they can. No one can mother like a woman. And being a mother is one of the great callings in life. In fact, probably the greatest theologian of the first millennium, you know, between the apostles and the Reformation, is a man by the name of uh, Augustine of Hippo. He grew up in a, with a Christian mother, Monica, and a pagan father, and as a young man, he completely rebelled and rejected the faith and gave in to all kinds of sin and indulgences. But his mother pleaded for him, prayed for him, sought him, and looking back at his life, this is what he said, the greatest theologian of the first millennium. If I am thy child, O God, it is because thou gavest me such 
a mother. Isn't that great? Behind this great man is a great woman. Behind every great man, behind every great woman, is a great woman. See, God is not against women. He wants to focus how he made you to bring maximum blessing to those who, who need it. And maybe our society and maybe the church doesn't honor you as much as we should. And that says more about us and maybe our obsession with power as opposed to a real understanding that, that greatness is not found in lording it over other people. Jesus says in Matthew 20, verse 26, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The beauty of motherhood is they give their life really as a ransom for their children. No one can mother like a mother. And in Luke, he makes it clear that God wants such women to be honored because God knows that behind every great man is a great woman. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are grateful for the women in our midst and how they support and how they serve. We thank you for their abilities in teaching and preaching and nurturing and serving and helping. And we recognize that our church would not be what it is today without their their sacrifice, service, and support. And Lord, we also recognize that we live in a, a society that often scorns such sacrifice. But I thank you for how they have, many of them have traded in the honor that comes from men and from this world for the honor that comes from you. And I pray for the men especially, that we will be especially appreciative and thankful and give such women honor. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.